Hi, and welcome to Where the White Coats Come Off podcast. We are Katie and Beth, PAs and doctors of medical science who are here to help you get accepted into PA school, get through PA school, and then have a thriving career as a PA. So if you are a pre-PA, a PA student, or a physician assistant, then you are in the right place. We are so happy you are here and so excited for your future. Before we get started, here's a few housekeeping items. First, we want to tell you about something we are doing that we know is going to be so incredibly valuable to you. We have an application to acceptance course that shows you exactly how to create your most competitive application, and it's a game changer for helping you get into PA school. But here's what we are doing. When you sign up for our application to acceptance course, we are going to go through every single piece with you every week. So not only do you get the course, but you get us every week to help you personally create your strongest CASPA application. We help you get your personal statement done and make sure it's epic, help create your strongest CASPA experience descriptions and everything in between so that you are ready to submit when CASPA opens and not just submit, but submit with confidence in your most competitive application so you can land interviews. Let's get you into PA school. Sign up in the show notes. Now on to today's episode. And this kid who was 14 who had one year of education is going to college and give in seamlessly. We've done workshops together for teachers, teaching them how to do oral history, teaching them how to teach their students to do oral histories of immigrants. She's a marvel. I love how the fact that, you know, you learned early in your career kind of by accident that the underserved was kind of a place that you wanted to be and that you managed to take this PA career and this love of teaching and love of storytelling and and everything else and kind of mesh it together. And I think that PA field is becoming more more diverse. Um, We're getting a lot more diverse candidates, different backgrounds, non-traditional, you know, this is really, really great. And I feel like a lot of our students probably are interested in maybe having passion for the underserved or immigrant community. What what advice would you have for students who are passionate about a certain patient population, about how to get involved in in these type of community activities? I mean, one obvious way is to use their health skills and that they have a kind of expertise that people really need. I mean, I'm thinking of, you know, the work I did working with migrant farm workers, they didn't know how to think about pesticides, or they didn't know housing right, you know, they didn't know their housing rights, they didn't know the dangers of not having water in the fields. Those technical skills, you know, and their ways to humbly share those skills without asking, acting like the, you know, the outside expert. I think that is a really important way. What I've often said, and they're not for people who are PAs or in the medical profession, we sort of ask that same question. I said, I think the important thing is not to spread yourself too thin and sort of pick what your passion is. For me, it was a community and it was health and safety stuff. That's what got me into it. But And not try to do too many things. Find a niche that really fits your passions and a community that you can find a way in. And there's so many ways. I mean, people are dying to have this kind of health information. And there's a way to teach it that is real empowering. And I, I would think, you know, part of your role is to be a teacher, be a facilitator. And really, I... I've turned a lot of people on to the work of Paolo Freire and there are other people. There are people who've done this around health and health stuff using this popular education model. And I've turned them on to those books to think, because that's not the model we've learned, you know, and it's really hard to break that image of being an expert. And it's a real image. I mean, there's validity in that because you have expertise, right? But how to share that knowledge and those skills in a way that empowers the people you're working with and makes 
them the owners of those skills and knowledge, you know. But I always tell you know, people, what tends to happen is people who care about this stuff don't just care about minority communities or migrants health or health disparities. They care about climate change and they care about racism and they, you know, they care about women's rights and gay rights. And what I've suggested is, you know, you can spread yourself too thin, sort of where your individual impact, impact in any of those issues which are so passionate to you is you're spread too thin to have any effect and pick one or two of those and say, this is where I'm going to focus my energy now. That's such excellent advice. So uh, you don't seem like the type of guy that can sit still during retirement. So what are you currently working on? <laughs> I wrote this book with Liliana and I sort of became her driver because she couldn't drive at the time. So I, and I was the person who sort of set up all these training programs and classes for three years really and so i mean that's partly what i did i also in the middle of doing i just want to say one thing about uh liliana's book like the other book of oral histories is it's completely in her words so my role was to interview the way we worked is i interviewed her yeah i mean they weren't really they were because we really became friends they were discussions you know they were conversations and then i and always I was asking her what she wanted to talk about. We made a list of things and we keep begging. She'd say something, well, if you want to, we'll make sure, let's make add that to the list. We have to get to that. But then I would do a rough draft, and this was in Spanish, of, you know, in, in that way, you know, an hour and a half conversation into maybe three or four pages. And I would give that to her. And, and she was amazing. She read it so carefully. This was a semi-literate person, but she really, and then she came back with real criticism. Uh, I'm not, and sometimes we put parentheses, I'm not sure I want to talk about that. I know I said it to you, but I'm not sure I want that in my book. Or sometimes she said, no, I don't want that in my book. And a lot of times she would add more to it. So she had complete control of the final version, including when it came time to designing the book. She was totally involved in the designs, picking colors, using photographs, you know. And then, and then I translated in English. So the book is bilingual. It's in Spanish and English, like the farm worker book was. What are you currently doing? Well, one thing, I wrote a collection. In this process, I really fell in love with writing. So I ended up writing a collection of short stories as well, which was a whole other thing. I was in a writing book for 15 years. You know, My wife has become very, very ill fatally ill so my focus is really at home right now with one exception is i in the last five years i've been playing blues harmonica so i've always wanted to learn blues and i say well i'm 76 or 76 if i don't do it soon i ain't gonna do it you know so i've been playing blues and really loving that and playing with stuff. i've gotten good enough so i feel like i can play with people publicly and stuff like that so and i can do that writing the writing I'm doing right now is I'm writing a lot about this journey that I'm on with my wife. Really important for me to understand that. And there, there are different things that are part of it, including things that I write to her, not just about us, but about her. And that has been really therapeutic. I've been involved through the storytelling stuff for many years with three grassroots organizations here in Philly. And I've I really had to pull away from that, which obviously is a loss, but wasn't a difficult decision. I really know where I need to be right now. How long have you been married for? 35 years. Yep. So 
you know, so this journey is uh, one thing I, I wrote about that really helped me understand there's this law of physics is that the more you compress the gas, the more active the molecules become and the more energy there is. And I feel like as our world is getting smaller, it's becoming more intimate in that kind of an image of the connectedness is, although it's sad, is also very, uh, it's a real gift. And, and there's a lot of connected, connectiveness and energy there. So that's, that's where I am. And, you know, I mean, these, these journeys are gifts in some ways, you know, not the gift you would choose, but, you know, so, and we've been using some remarkable health providers, you know, it's sort of, she has a movement disorder and we've been going to this movement disorder center where they're amazing people, speech therapists and occupational therapists, physical therapists, neurologists, and they're just amazing. It's like a family to us. You know, and her primary care doctor is just, you know, both a straight shooter and filled with amazing empathy. Somebody who coincidentally has been a friend of ours for a long time. So I'm sort of benefiting from a health system or a piece of a health system that really is working for us both. I mean, there isn't anything they can do to stop this progress. But in terms of helping us emotionally and physically managing it, we're so lucky. And maybe as a health provider, you appreciate it more. You know, I, I'm certainly as a health provider, you tend to be more critical and demanding, but we're really lucky. Well, Mark, thank you so much for sharing all that with us. Um, you have such a unique insight and just with everything you've done in your life and kind of all the things you've started and all these people you've talked to. One thing that really stood out to me in our entire conversation was whenever you were writing these books or writing these stories, you made a concerted effort to put them in their words. And I think that's really, really important because I think sometimes we translate people's stories into our words and we don't have the same background. We don't have the same language. Uh, we don't have the same experiences. So translating it, I think sometimes can take away from it. And so I just think it's really, really fascinating that you were able to kind of keep the core part of it without projecting you and your experiences onto individuals so i think that that really makes it really powerful that it's it's coming from from their words and they agree that yeah this is the way i want to say it this is what i meant because as we know contextually even when you're switching from language to language or even generation to generation the, the meaning of words change and, and that type of thing and so you're really keeping the message true and keeping the message powerful by you know letting it be in their own words well that's such an important insight i mean in terms of you sort of understanding what was so important to me about doing that, those stories right. I mean, when I, when I was getting to know them, uh, what I said to them, I want this to be the story you want to tell, not the story I want to tell about you. And that's sort of what you said. Also, it's a whole, you know, it builds, those relationships are just golden to me. I mean, Liliana and I have this ongoing relationship, you know, we're still in touch and a lot. And, and we spent so much time together and then all this stuff of her doing all these talks and me and every time after every talk. I mean, she's amazing. And she said, tell me what I did wrong. First thing she said, you know, and of course I would tell her what she did right. And then, you know, if she, I said, well, you could do, you know, when you did this, you sort of skipped over this. And if you sort of given more detail of 
about what it was like when you got up at one o'clock in the morning to start cooking for your brothers and sisters and your parents. You know, don't just say, you know, like linger, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, those those relationships are are, are such gifts to me. And what happens is you build, as you build more trust, you get it gets deeper. The first thing I did is I got one of those giant maps. It's at least three or four feet across of Mexico with the Guatemalan border on the southern border. And I, and we spent two nights. I said, okay, let's just, so that I can get a sense of your trip, let's go through the trip. And she had this amazing memory. She'd say, okay, on the second day, and these are little villages, you know. You know, she said, I stopped here, and this is where I met so-and-so, and his name was Jose. And I was saying, okay, we got to, you know. And on this one, this is where we got robbed by the narcos. And here's where I, these guys I traveled with who were so wonderful, they were going to the Texas border and invited me to go with them to cross the river. And I said, I can't swim. So I went to Arizona, you know, by myself. You know, I, they put me on a bus to Arizona. And, bec- you know, so all that. And she said, when we first started, and we sort of I said, okay, let's, how do we think about this in terms of organizing it? And I said, I sort of see three things. One is your life at home. One was your trip. And one is your life in America. And she said, I don't, I'm not ready to talk about home yet. Let's start in Mexico. So we started on the trip, and then in the middle of the trip, which took us many conversations, she said, okay, I want to go back and talk about why I left. And then all this stuff about the violence of her family and her alcoholic father and the two men who tried to rape her and being beaten on the street by some thief. And there's this amazing photograph that she had. I don't know how she had it was of her at 13, the year she before she left, sitting on a bed, and she looks like a absolute forlorn waif. And this kid who, three years later, was telling me this story was, look who you've become. So, yeah, and it seems, and then she began to peel more and more away about, you know, the sexual violence towards her. You know, she wasn't going to go there for a long time. But it was an important part finally for her to help the reader in this case understand why she you know she was really fleeing for her life you know all and all this stuff came out of interesting I mean you talk you sort of meant you didn't use the word but I think it fits serendipity I mean I got fired and ended up going down this path that spoke a little Spanish, but barely none, you know, at that time. And, and all this stuff working with my immigrants and migrant farm workers. Just so fascinating. Everything you can do with the PA field. Every time people ask us, like, why should we want to be PAs? And I'm like, but it's because of people like you and just the difference you make in the communities. And we're just a different type of healthcare worker. And it's hard to explain that to someone who doesn't know and doesn't understand. But we come from it from such a different place, I feel like, than other healthcare workers. And I just love the fact that you took your passions and you were able to make a career out of that. And, you know, you used your PA degree, you used your health and safety, you used your love of immigrants, you know, you used your Spanish language, and you were just able to mesh that into an amazing career and just meet people that inspired you and that you still are in contact with and that are touching other lives. And so I will always say that every life you touch and they touch someone else, you never know what kind of impact you have in the world. And I do think that that is something that is so special about PAs and that, you know, we hope to, you know, see a generation to come that we continue to be these type of healthcare providers. So can I ask you, when I went to school, you know, it was part of this real clear vision of PAs working in communities of need. 
uh, and primary care in rural areas. And do you think that that's still, I mean, it may be a stated goal of, of a program, but do you think that in terms of the goals of people who become PAs, are they still doing that? Are they doing it as much or less in terms of, you know, are they specializing more because it's more interesting and less frustrating, you know, all those kind of things? What do, what do you guys sense about that? I think that there is definitely a heart for the underserved and a lot of the pre-PAs that we work with. I also think that the profession is so incredible as far as lifestyle that there's also the pre-PA that wants a great lifestyle and, you know, the opportunities to switch between specialties. But across the board, the vast majority of pre-PAs and PA students that we've taught or worked with, they all have, you know, for the vast majority have really great intentions and good hearts to serve. So Yale started with the first online PA program four years ago, and uh, they successfully graduated their first class, their first cohort. And so uh, everybody was kind of waiting to see like what Yale was going to do because they were truly online, except for they did have callbacks, I think like for one week each quarter semester. So four weeks total for like the lab portions. So they were truly online. So everybody was kind of watching what is Yale, you know, how's it going to work out? And now there's like a handful, a good handful of hybrid programs. And they're all a little bit different as far as like how often they call back and, and how much they're online. COVID shoved that into into yeah. the present. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah. So can I ask you one more question? Yeah. There was a young woman who's now become the, like the daughter we never had who lived with us for a couple of years while she was doing her pre-PA stuff. She ended up going to George Washington. And I was amazed about the course requirements to get in. I mean, I said, this is like medical school. It feels like that. I mean, when I, you know, when I was at when it was then Hahnemann, they weren't a BS, BA program yet, or BS program. You didn't have to have a BA to get in. You didn't have to have a college degree mm. to get in. Everybody had one to two years at least, and some were college grads. And then they were in the process of shifting. To, you had to have a college, you know, four-year college degree. And I really fought that because of my experience at Stony Brook, where, you know, people, some just had high school education, but been trained as corpsmen and were remarkable, you know, and I felt like that was going to sort of create a class divide in terms of the people who were would be accepted were the people who n now not only went to college, but took all these basically pre-med courses. So it, it's interesting because it has become more competitive because it's such a good career, right? You can make money, you can have a good life. Uh, the problem is, is that a lot of people come in without the medical experience. And so if you don't have the medical, the foreman experience, the, whatever, the medic type stuff, they, they need those foundational science courses. So we've seen a lot of students who even take them but maybe don't do so great or they took them five years ago, really, really struggle in PA school because, yes, you can learn a lot on the job if you're a medic for five or six years, but the vast majority of our students aren't, aren't doing that anymore. They're trying to come right out of undergrad to go to graduate school. So if you don't have that experience, you need definitely need the science courses in my opinion. We want to thank you for coming and sharing your story. It's so interesting. Katie and I just love to hear people's stories. I guess we're like you oh, know, right? Oh, great stories. Well, thank you so much, okay? I really, you guys are great to talk with. Thank you so much for listening to Where the White Coats Come Off. 
We are so happy you are here and so excited for all that your future holds as a PA. Before you leave, go to the show notes and download your free 30 days of tips to be the best PA school candidate. 30 actionable, tactical tips that will make you a better candidate to grab the attention of PA programs so you can land those interviews. Grab it in the show notes. Also, if these episodes are helpful for you, please subscribe and leave a review. When you leave a review, you are automatically entered into our weekly drawing to win some epic prizes. So subscribe and leave a review. Thank you so much for listening, and we are so honored to be a part of your path to PA. We will see you later this week with the next episode.